All right, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. And we have got a story this morning, a text this morning, that uh, we're only going to make it about halfway through. Uh, we're going to kind of stop mid-story on this one for the, the morning. I, I could have tried to cram all this into one sermon, a little bit like I did last week, or uh, split this up. And I'm going to split it up because I think we have a couple of very important lessons that we can learn from this. So First Kings chapter 19, and I'll just warn you, we're going to end about halfway through and not going to get the full story of what happened. So you'll need to come back, or you can, you know, read the rest of the chapter. But uh, you'll, need to, you'll need to come back next week, and we'll be able to finish some of this. And this is a story that I think, uh, if you're following along in the story, is one of the most unexpected ones in all of Scripture. Because on its surface, it doesn't seem like what happens should happen. Uh, but the more you read the Gospels, the more you read the story of, of, uh, that is being told in, in, the, in the Bible and in the Gospels specifically, you'll see that this is really kind of how God uh, works. So just kind of set the stage for that. Uh, we're in 1 Kings 19. We're looking at the life of Elijah right now and some of the, the big stories with him. Uh, and last week we saw the, the, the big story where uh, he called down fire, the thing that you probably know Elijah for, which... Uh, makes the next uh, the next chapter all the more uh, surprising. So this weekend it snowed, which is ridiculous. Uh, but by the end of the week, I'm probably gonna have to uh, I'm probably gonna have to mow my yard. Uh, I'm gonna have to get out there and I'm gonna have to start the spring ritual. That uh, once I start it this week, I will have to do it every week until like October or November. And I can't, I won't be able to skip a week. I won't be able to miss a week. It's gonna be every week. I'm gonna have to get out there. Uh, and mow. And I'm going to have to do it over and over and over. And why am I going to have to do that? Why I'm going to have to, uh, this week I probably need to trim back some trees that I've neglected all winter long that I said I was going to take care of in November that I didn't. Uh, I'm going to have to put down some mulch. I'm going to have to do all that kind of stuff over the next couple of weeks. And then I'm just going to have to keep doing this stuff because that's the way yard work is. You just have to keep doing it uh, non-stop. Uh, it always grows back. Uh, this afternoon, whenever I get home, I'm going to have to do some laundry. And if I had the entire day to just do nothing but laundry, I probably still would not be able to get caught up because I've got a lot of laundry to do. I'm going to have to fold that laundry. I'm going to have to watch that laundry get completely uh, messed up again and put right back into the dirty laundry hamper so that I have to do that uh, laundry again. And you guys could probably list a dozen different things in your life or more that are, that are just like this, things that you have to work really hard at, that you have to be diligent at, that you have to do constantly. And the whole time that you're, at, that you're doing them, you're asking, what is the point in this? Because I'm just going to have to do this again. You're going to have to do the dishes again. You're going to have to do the laundry again. You're going to have to mow your yard again. You're going to have to trim those bushes again. You're going to have to do all of that and it can make you uh, very frustrated because you just sit back and you say, what is the point in this? Why am I working so hard at this? Why am I spending so much of my life on this? I'm just going to have to do it again. Why does it even matter? And this morning we're going to read about a moment that Elijah has where, uh, and it's one that kind of comes out of nowhere, but where he ends up basically asking the question, what's the point? What's the point in all this stuff that I've done? What does it even matter? Now, the answer he gets will frame the rest of his life. And if we have ears to hear, uh, I think it can help frame the rest of our lives 
too. So let's read the end of chapter 18 and remind ourselves just how triumphant he was last week whenever we wrapped up, all right? So uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, the, the last couple of verses here, start in verse 44. Uh, and at the seventh time, so remember he told the guy to go look for the, uh, go, his assistant, go look for the rain, look for a cloud. Uh, he went seven times. On the seventh time, saw a little cloud. He says, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up and say to Ahab. So this is, this is basically uh, Elijah continuing his trash talk. He's continuing to mock and kind of run his mouth to Ahab, uh, who has lost the battle of the gods on top of Mount Carmel. He says, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, while the heavens grew black and the clouds and the wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. All right, so this ends, and you cannot overstate the confidence that Elijah has right here. He is full of himself, or full of something, full confidence for sure. He is absolutely riding high. It's on the edge of arrogance the way that he talks. He just, he just mocked the prophets of Baal, uh, and, 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 uh, and, and now he's, he's basically mocking Ahab as well. And he didn't just mock the prophets of Baal, he killed the prophets of Baal. Uh, and now he's calling out the king. The king that, let's remind you, three years prior, three and a half years prior, he had gone to that king and he had said, uh, hey, it's not going to rain here for three and a half years. It's not going to rain basically until I say it's going to rain again because of what you uh, have done in setting up all these different altars to worship Baal all throughout Israel. And then it didn't rain for three and a half years, it, it, exactly as Elijah said. So this is a pretty, uh, he's a pretty confident guy. He's, he, he's, he's either predicted or himself brought about this drought for three and a half years, his judgment on Israel as a rebuke on King Ahab and his failures. And uh, so you, you've got that. Uh, and then uh, after that, he's, he's had this challenge where he said, let's do this, let's throw down. And he won that handily as God showed up and set the altar on fire while, meanwhile, Baal and all of his dancing prophets who were there to uh, call down fire from Baal uh, heard nothing but silence there. And so now he goes back to Ahab and he says, you better get to moving because that chariot's awfully hard to drive in the mud. And it's about to get really, really muddy. In fact, it's about to flood. It's about to get, it's about to get bad because it's going to rain a lot. And you know, when it's not rained for three and a half years and then it comes a downpour, that doesn't just go right in the ground. That creates a lot of problems. So he says, Ahab, you better get moving before the rain comes because you're not going to go anywhere in that chariot. And then Ahab takes off and leaves and goes back to Jezreel where uh, his queen Jezebel was. He goes back there. And, uh, and, and Elijah is so full of confidence uh, in where he's at and so kind of riding on a high, he beats, uh, he, he beats Ahab and his chariot and his convoy back down the mountain and actually beats him back to Jezreel. He's like, you're going there, I'll go there too. Let's all go and see what happens. And so I want you to think about where Elijah has to be mentally at this point. He is a rock star. He is a stud. All of Israel has either seen or heard about what has happened. Ahab certainly has seen this display. In Elijah's mind, he has just saved the nation of Israel. In Elijah's mind, he has just saved his 
people. Surely after this display, all of Israel will turn back to Yahweh. Surely all of Israel will repent of their idol worship and these, these, uh, these kind of makeshift temples and altars that have been set up. Surely they will all get torn down. Surely they will all revere Elijah for this great display that he has uh, kind of brought about. The drought, the fiery showdown, it's worked. His plan has all worked. Everything he's done has gone exactly as he he planned. He is the rarest of rare things in the history of Israel. He is a successful prophet. He is a prophet that, the, that, that is heard. He is a prophet who has done what he came to do. The successful prophet basically doesn't exist in the history of Israel. And yet now you have Elijah who, who has come and, and, and has said, this is what's going to happen, and it's happened. And now he's riding that high all the way back to the city. Elijah's so different than the rest of them. He's successful. He's done it. Now don't misunderstand me. I don't think that he thinks that he did it himself. I think he fully is trusting God in this one, and he gives credit and glory to God for doing it. But it's an extraordinary moment, and he's enjoying it like a guy who's just hit the last second shot in the NCAA tournament. That is what he's doing. He is celebrating. He's, 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 he's running around saying, here we are. We've won. This is it. We are the best. And this is where things go a little sideways and take a very unexpected turn for our fiery hero. So 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1. Ahab goes back to Jezreel and he tells Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So wait a minute. This is not what we're expecting to hear in this spot. We're expecting Ahab to go back to Jezebel to say what has happened and for Jezebel to basically say, uh-oh, this isn't good. Uh-oh, we have a problem. Uh-oh, he's won. He's expecting that. Did Jezebel misunderstand the report? Did Ahab get confused about what he saw and misrepresent what had happened? Were they confused why the rain was coming down outside the, the palace? Elijah's expecting one of two things. He's either expecting Ahab and Jezebel to repent, to admit that they had made a terrible mistake, to, to, to give the order to tear down all the altars, and to come back and to worship God. Or, more likely that those two would tuck tail and run, and they would leave all of Israel, and then Israel would come behind them, tear down all of the altars that had been set up throughout Israel, and replace these two with a new and a godly king. One of those two things was bound to happen. That's why Elijah was so excited to get back to Jezreel. He's like, yeah, let's see what's next. Let's keep the winning streak going here. And Elijah didn't get any of that. That's not what Elijah got at all. Here's the thing, people in power aren't usually very keen on giving up that power. And Jezebel is, is saying, listen, no, 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 I'm in this spot where I'm at. I don't care what happened on top of that mountain. I'm going to hold on to this position. I'm going to hold on to my power in spite of everything that's in front of me that tells me that, that his God has won. I'm going to make sure that I hold on 
to this, even denying the obvious reality of the situation. Whether Baal showed up or not is irrelevant to Jezebel. She has no intentions of going anywhere. So she sends this threat via a messenger to Elijah to put him on notice. His time is short. So what does Elijah do now in response to this threat, this death warrant that has been put out on Elijah's head? Let me tell you what I'd expect. I would expect for it to go something like this. Oh yeah, Jezebel? Bring it on. Let's go. I've done this once already. I've done it twice. Let's make it three times. Third time's a charm. I've gone head-to-head with, with your king. I've gone head-to-head with your, uh, your false god. And now I'll go head-to-head with you. I've had confidence in God the first time. I've had confidence in God the second time. And now I will have confidence this time. He's delivered me before. He'll deliver me again. I will kill you just like the prophets that I just finished killing. And God will be right here with me while I do it. Did you not just see what happened on top of that mountain? I'm not scared of you. I've got Yahweh. But let's see what actually happens. First Kings 19.3. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. What in the world? Why in the world is this Elijah's response? He's just seen some of the most magnificent displays of God's power in, in, in all of the Bible, let alone up to that point in Israel's history. He doesn't do anything that I would expect him to do. He doesn't uphold any of those things. Instead, he just flat out bails. And not just kind of bails, not just kind of leaves, not just kind of like, like heads in a different direction. Man, he's terrified. I want you to see this map. I don't know. You can put either one of those maps up there. I don't know which, whichever one you want. Uh, I want you to see this map, and it'll give you an idea of where it came from. So you can't see this real, real well. There's a red line all the way on there. Jezreel, there's right smack in the middle, just above where it says Israel. And there's this red line all the way down to Beersheba, down at the very bottom. All right? So this is where he goes. Go to the other map. You might be able to see it just a little bit better on the other map. It's not much better. Uh, But you can kind of see you got Mount Carmel at the top to Jezreel and then all the way down here to Beersheba. That's a long way. He literally goes from the very top of the northern kingdom, Israel, all the way down into Judah, the southern kingdom. Remember we talked about how the two kingdoms had split? So not only does he run away, he runs to a place where Jezebel and Ahab no longer have jurisdiction. He runs to a a whole new place in order to find some protection. And what you don't see on this is Beersheba, where it's located, it's basically right on the edge of a desert. So he basically runs as far as he physically and geographically can to get away from Jezebel. It's about a week's journey if you're just taking it at normal speed. Maybe you can do it at five days if you're hoofing it like Elijah probably was. He's going as far as he can. And then he finally stops. And we get to hear a little bit more about why he ran. It tells us already that he was afraid. He feared for his life. We know he was scared, but then this passage tells us a little bit more in verse 4. 
says, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. So he went to Beersheba, and then he kind of kept on going another day, journey into the wilderness, and he came and he sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. So now we get to get a little bit more of a picture. He was scared of Jezebel. And he was scared of what she could do. He knew that she actually could probably kill him if she were not stopped some way. And after a few days of running, he's done some thinking. And now he realizes, you know what? Maybe death isn't so bad after all. I'm kind of done here. He's had enough. And the reason why is kind of given to us here. So it says he lays down under this broom tree. So it's just like a small tree, a little bit bigger than a bush, just enough to give him some, some shade on the edge of the desert there and kind of give him a place to rest. He, he lays down there. And, and we see a little bit here where he says, it's enough, take away my life. I am no better than my father's. And what he realizes is that he's had enough. He's had enough because the, the contest on top of the mountain for all of Israel to see or to hear about, about who was the true God, has had no effect. No one has repented. No altars have been torn down. He thought it would be this simple grand act of faith. And Israel would come running back, repenting for what they have done. But they've not. He's just like all the other prophets that came before him. He's just like all those others that came before him that warned Israel of what they were doing and nobody listened. He's just like all the others. He's not a successful prophet after all. I mean, I mean God came through in all the things that he put forward, but nobody heard and nobody listened. He's just like all the others. He's shouting a message that people refuse to hear. And so his response, his response is basically this. If I'm just like all the other guys, then what's the point? What's the point in all this? What's the point in me setting up these showdowns? What's the point in three and a half years of no rain if nobody's going to listen? What's the point? I'm done here. I've had enough. And I'm on, I'll be honest, I'm not so sure that he's like suicidal here. He says, you know, I'm, I, I, I don't even want to really live. I think he's just kind of aimless. He has no idea what to do at this point. He's run away. He's put on the show. He's made his point. What else is there for him to do? And I think he, he's honestly just like, look, I've done what I came to do here. I got nothing else to offer. I did what I came to do. Now, a lot of, a, 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 a lot of uh, uh, commentators on this will, will talk about how this is a biblical portrait of depression. Uh, and maybe that's the case. I'm, I'm not really sure. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a trained counselor. I'm not here to diagnose whether Elijah is depressed here or whether you're depressed. I'm not here to do that. I'm not qualified uh, to do this. But I can read the text. And here's what I know about Elijah right here. He's done. He's had enough. He is done. 
He sees no point in carrying on with any of this charade. If God isn't going to bring his people back, and if the people aren't going to listen, even on such a great display that is put on before them, then, then he has no mission for his life, basically. His life is pointless. And I think there's a couple of things we can learn for this. First, I want you to see, I, w- I want you to hear Elijah's passion is admirable here. What he wants to see is, is, is great. We would do well to learn from Elijah's desire to see God's name be made great throughout Israel. We would do well to learn from his passion and his zeal. I pray that we would all have that level of zeal uh, to see people repent and to run to God. I, if, if we all had that level of zeal that Elijah does, then w- this city would have no issues. This community would have no issues if, if just the people in this room had the level of zeal that Elijah does. But Elijah's mistake is not his zeal. It's his expectations. He thought his ministry was going to be clear, simple, straightforward, to the point, successful, and spectacular. That's what he thought his ministry was going to be. He was not counting on this. He was not counting on being ignored, dismissed, forgotten. He was not counting on being just like all the others. And when God didn't meet his expectations, what that meant for Elijah is that all hope was lost and he was done. He just didn't see a point. Now listen, when I began, I talked about laundry and yard work and like trivial stuff that can make us ask what's the point. But those things are trivial and pretty small in the grand scheme of things. But on a bigger scale, there are so many other things in our lives that carry tremendous weight that can make us ask that same question. And oftentimes, those big questions are accompanied by great failures, or at least things that we see as great failures, things that feel like great failures. Like when we lose a job, when a relationship falls apart, when divorce feels like the only option, when miscarriage and infertility seem to be insurmountable. When wars rage, when abuse goes unpunished or unnoticed, when orphanages are full, when children walk away, and when God doesn't show show up quite like you thought he would. Those are all real moments. And those are all moments where we are tempted to feel the same weight of Elijah's despair and ask, what's the point in any of this anyway? What's the point? What does it matter? If I can call down fire and nobody cares, what's the point? Let's just be done here. But I want you to see how God shows up in the midst of Elijah's despair here. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 5. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a There was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. 
So God stirs Elijah, he provides for him, tells him to take a nap, tells him to eat some, some Kodiak cakes and get some protein in you because you got, you got a ways to go, you got a journey ahead of you, you need to be ready to go here. You've come this far, I want you to go a little bit further. You've already made this journey, I want you to go even further now. I want you to go all the way down to Mount Horeb. Does anybody know the other name for Mount Horeb? In the Old Testament? Anybody? I heard somebody. Mount Sinai. That's, a, that's what we know it as more, is Mount Sinai. Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, same thing. Same place Moses met God in the burning bush. The same place Moses took the people of Israel whenever they left Egypt. The same place God wrote the Ten Commandments in stone while Moses was on top of the mountain, where God met Moses in fire and smoke and thunder. And the angel says, rest up, eat up, I've got a journey for you to make. You're going to the same place where Moses talked to God. So he makes this journey, and he comes to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, whatever you want to call it. You've got to wonder what is on Elijah's mind. I said this last week or a couple weeks ago. Uh, like, there's parts of the narrative that are just woefully short on details for me. I want to know what he's thinking during this journey. This journey of 40 days and 40 nights. That is not an accident. Forty days and forty nights he makes this journey going to this mountain. What is on his head? Or what is, what is on his mind? What is in his head while he is making this journey? It's light on the details, but, but, but Elijah seems to like the flair for the dramatic, right? You predict the drought, you call down fire. He seems to kind of like this thing. And you don't get any more dramatic or any more symbolic than Mount Sinai. You, you don't, you don't, there's nothing else that, that you can talk about in the history of Israel that's more important than that moment and the Ten Commandments and Moses and all of that. Elijah has to be pretty amped for what's about to happen. He's got to be fired up. He's got to be thinking like, here I am, this prophet, and God's not quite done yet. Let's go to Sinai. Maybe I'm going to get Commandments 11 through 20. Maybe I'm going to get the next set. Maybe I'm going to get the next revelation of God. Let's do it. Let's go. I'm ready for the fire. I'm ready for the smoke. Let's go. And we get to verse 9. There he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Listen, when God comes to you and asks you a question, he's not looking for information. He's, 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 usually, he's usually trying to get you to indict yourself. He's usually trying to get you to, to come forward with things that you've not even thought of just yet. And he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. I'm the last one, God. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me too. So God asks this question. He's trying to help Elijah out, kind of draw some information out. And as you can see by his answer, Elijah doesn't really know what he's doing there. He's not really sure. Doesn't make any sense to him why he's at this place. He knows he's done his duty. And all he's got to show for it is a death warrant from Jezebel. So he tells God about it. And then verse 11. 
God responds to that comment from Elijah, and he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a low whisper, a still small voice, a thin voice. That's how it literally translates there. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? you got to figure, when Elijah's on that mountain and that wind starts to pick up a little bit and, 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 and the earth starts to rumble and shake, you got, you got to figure that Elijah was stoked. That he's like, here it comes. Oh, I've read about this. This is, I I knew the stories were true. I knew it was real. This is where Moses was. This is, oh, it's it's happening. It is, it's got to be happening. Here we go. God sees me here. He sees me. I'm just like Moses. I'm just like him. One of the few successful prophets that we have ever had. And he sees me and he knows that I'm just like Moses. And he's about to do something amazing just like that. People are going to tell stories about me forever because this is amazing. And then he hears nothing. He, he's just, the wind blows. The fire comes. The earth shakes. And he's looking around like, uh, you forgot part. Like, you, you, you're supposed to come and give me something now. Where's the, where's the rest of the, where's the thing you're supposed to do here? Where are you, God? He hears nothing until he hears a whisper. A thin, still voice. And that scene is dramatic. And there's a lot we can make out of this. And I don't pretend to have plumbed the depths of what all is going on here. But there's a couple of things that I want to point out. And then, like I said, we're going to stop mid-story. I'm not, I'm not going past this, right? So when he asks this question again, what are you doing here, Elijah? We'll come back next week for Elijah's answer, all right? I'll give you a hint. He says the exact same thing. But we're going to talk about why he says the same thing next week. But just this right here, this part of the story, I want to stop here. Because I think there's a lot we can learn from what is happening here, what is going on. God has brought Elijah all the way down to Mount Sinai to make a few points. First, God brought Elijah all the way down here. And he puts on this magnificent show that's almost identical to what he did with Moses. You go read the stories in Exodus, it's almost the exact same thing. Only this time, he doesn't, he doesn't do any of the cool stuff that he did with Moses. He doesn't talk to him. Elijah doesn't get any new laws or new revelation. Elijah doesn't get to see God pass by him. Elijah doesn't get to come down the mountain with his face glowing or with the next Ten Commandments or any of that. In fact, Elijah hears absolutely nothing at all in this big display. Why in the world does God do that to him? It's all about God trying to teach, and it's all about God trying to show his ways are his ways. And his ways are what Elijah has to adapt to. And God will teach his lesson in his way using his means. 
the best way that he sees fit to teach that lesson. In the story with Moses, God was, was putting his power on display and his magnificence on display for Moses to experience and for Israel to see. Coming out of Egypt, he was doing this specifically so that it could be seen. His purpose was clear and his agenda was accomplished. And it was accomplished best by that grand, magnificent display with Moses on top of the mountain. And so that's why he chose to speak and work in the way that he did with Moses at that time. And Elijah expects God to do the same thing, which makes total sense. I'm not knocking Elijah's expectations here. It makes total sense because that's what he knows. He's heard the story. He got, he, he, he got taste of it just a few weeks earlier on Mount Carmel. He knows God can do these things. But God is teaching Elijah an important lesson that we have to learn this morning too. God will work in whatever way he sees fit and our expectations of what he should do or how we think he should do it are completely irrelevant. He will do it however he chooses. He is not limited by anything, not the least of which what we think he should do. What we think he should do is the least of his concerns. A lot of times when we get to the place where we say, what's the point? What does it matter anyway? We're not asking because it's hopeless. We're asking because we're completely confused. We're asking because the situation we're in makes no sense. We're asking because where we're at and what's going on is so hard for us to understand and comprehend. We say, what's the point? Because I just don't see how this is going to work out. I don't see how we're going to get from A to B. We're asking because our present circumstances don't look at all like what we thought they would if God were present. He looks absent, but the truth is he's just speaking in a way that we can't quite see yet. God will work in whatever way he sees fit, whether we agree with that or not. He will use whatever means he deems necessary to accomplish his will. Even, if, even, even as Joseph said in Genesis that what was intended for evil, God used for good. He will use whatever means he chooses, whatever means he deems necessary. This morning, if you're discouraged and maybe feeling a bit forgotten, maybe you're even flat out mad at God. I want to offer this up to you as something to take hold of, to give you maybe hope in a place where hope is hard for you to find right now. Just because you didn't expect it, didn't choose it, and don't want it, doesn't mean that God is not in it. Just because you wanted life to go one way, and now it's going another, doesn't mean that God isn't there. It's almost certainly just the case that we can't see where he's going or how he's working. And it's okay to be in that place. It's okay to be honest, just like Elijah was. It's okay to say, here's where I'm at. I don't know why I'm here and I don't like it. For Elijah, he didn't get to be the next Moses walking down with a glowing face. But he did get something pretty special that even Moses didn't get. He got a whisper from God. Don't misunderstand me. We all want to see God put on a display. Moses wanted to see it. He asked for it. 
Elijah already had and wanted to see it again. But what Elijah got in this moment was very different and also pretty incredible. I'm not a big, I'm not a big concert guy. I don't like a lot of concerts, but I've, I've had a chance to go to a few. They're just not really my, my thing, but I've been to a few. I've been to some big ones. I went to one at Neyland Stadium, got to, see, got to see Kenny Chesney several years ago with all kinds of other people. So I've been to Neyland, been to a few at Thompson Bowling, some pretty big concerts there. They're all fun. It's fun to go and sing along with tens of thousands of people, uh, all singing songs that you know. But you know what I've found about concerts the more that I've been to? The smaller the venue, the better the concert. The smaller the venue, the better the concert. Something about the intimacy of the small room, the closeness of the singer there to you, the the band right there in front of you, the personal feel of the moment, the ability for the, the artist to be on a stage and look you right in the eye as they are singing these songs. There's something about that that just makes it better. What Elijah got was a gift. He didn't get the trumpet blast from God, but he got the intimate, close, delicate, tender, soft whisper of God. It may have required that he adjust his thinking. It may have required that that he he adjust his, his listening. It may have required that he lean in just a little bit so that he could hear it. It talks about how he came out with his cloak over his face because of all that was going on. You just have to wonder if he didn't just have to kind of turn and and put his ear to the the sound so that he could hear it and kind of lean in just a little bit. So it is with us. We may need new ears to hear what God is saying, but he is speaking. And to hear a whisper in your ear... Well, that tells us that God is, yes, he's, he's grand and big and powerful and terrifying and intimidating. He is all of those things, but he is also intimate, close, small, tender, disarming. And he will get his message across to his people using both of those things. And I wonder, when is the last time you asked God? Or maybe you just, you just said it out loud, not even necessarily asking God. You just said it. What's the point? What I want us to see this morning is that we endure frustration and failure. We go through some things that can lead us to some, some very dark places. But Elijah's story shows us that God doesn't walk away from us. He doesn't shame us. He doesn't dismiss us. He never does any of that. In fact, in this story, while Elijah goes under a broom tree and says, just let me die, God sends an angel to sustain him. God feeds him. God sends him on a journey. He speaks to him. We'll see next week the mission that he gives him. Again, this is not something that Elijah is going to be expecting. But this morning, it's just enough to know that God spoke. That God was there. That God heard him and that God came to him. Not in a way that he expected, not in a way that he would have chosen. But he spoke. And this morning, we don't have to wonder what God has said to us. You don't have to strain your ears to hear it, not in the same way that Elijah did. 
Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We know what Jesus is saying, or we know what, what God is saying because we can look to the life of Jesus, his death and his resurrection. When you look to the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you see God's full power on display. But you also see his intimate, tender care for his people. It's all bound up in Jesus. It's all bound up in him. And don't, don't misunderstand, God still speaks today through His Word, through His Son, through the, the Holy Spirit. Through the, he, even with the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, it's better that I leave so that you can have the Spirit come to comfort you and to, to care for you. So He still speaks through the Holy Spirit, through trials and tribulations, through success and failure, through His people, and through any means He chooses. But all of those things are designed to bring us back to Jesus. And so as we follow him, we let his words comfort our heart, even whenever he chooses to speak in ways we would not have chosen. Man, the disciples know that. They didn't want a dead Messiah. They wanted a king to rule, to take down Rome. And the Saturday after, after Good Friday, they're all looking around at each other like, what's going on here? They didn't want that. But then they got to see the power of God on display. And they got, to, they got to stand with the risen Jesus. As we follow him, we let his words comfort our hearts. This Jesus who can turn over tables can also comfort us. Friends, if you're here this morning and you are like Elijah, discouraged, confused, a bit lost, wondering why in the world things are happening the way that they're happening, without purpose, maybe even it feels like you're without hope, perhaps you can let Jesus' words be that still small voice, that, 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 that caring, tender whisper. He says in John 16, he says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And I just wonder if the disciples didn't have to lean in a little bit to hear him say that. That's not the bravado of a, that's not the, the, the bravado of a conquering king. That's not the bravado like Elijah was looking for. It's not the bravado the disciples were looking for. But it's what they needed. What they, that's what they needed to hear. And this morning, I think that for, for many of us, that is what we need to hear. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we confess far too often we are much like Elijah. We are in despair and hopeless, not because the situation is hopeless, not because you have abandoned us, not because you have left 
simply because you did not meet our expectations. Father, I pray that you will correct our vision, you will correct our hearing. Father, I pray that we would not limit you in any way, that you would choose to speak however you choose to speak. Father, I pray that we would not neglect your word, that we would not neglect your son, that we would not neglect the the leading and the teaching of the Spirit. Father, I just pray that you would give us ears to hear as you blow the trumpet or as you whisper in our ear. And that we would be reassured by both of those. It's in Christ's name we pray.